When I was young, growing up in the state of Texas, I was fascinated with caves. And in the town where I lived, there was one that was a decent-sized cave that you could take tours of. In fact, my older sister worked there for a while as a guide. So needless to say, I went on this tour a number of times, and I always enjoyed the moment when deep in the cave, the guide would give the order for the lights to go off. After a few moments in the disorienting blackness, He would tell us to wave our hand in front of our face, but we saw nothing. The guide pointed out to us that if we were in a darkened room in our house, it is likely that after a few moments our eyes would begin to adjust as they eventually picked up faint traces of light. But he insisted that no matter how long we tried and how long we stayed in this cave, Our eyes would never adjust because it was void of light. As he spoke, many would begin to laugh nervously. And uh, you would even begin to feel a little bit dizzy as you tried to get your bearings. And a little bit of anxiety would begin to set in. The idea of being trapped in total darkness was terrifying. There was something very profound about that experience for me. It reminded me of how Genesis chapter 1 describes the universe prior to the creating command of God which brought light. And on a deeper, much more sobering level, that experience in the cave drove home to my heart the reality of the default darkness of the fallen human heart enslaved to sin, and under the power of the evil one. What is even scarier about the blinded heart is that it is not in a state of appropriate terror at the seriousness of its condition. But instead, it tells itself that it is quite all right. And it will continue that way unless something drastic happens. Something miraculous. Our passage today is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. In this passage, we see this reality of the human heart explained, the cure set forth, and the implications on ministry described. You can turn in your Bibles and find it in the New Testament between the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you today, then you can find it in the bulletin and up on the projector screen. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is perhaps my favorite passage in the Bible. I'm sure that my wife is considering um, that to be a true statement as I often quote this passage and I find many applications for it. But today, because of time, I will limit myself to three regarding our text. The first point today, first question I want to ask is what is this veil or blindness? What is this veil or blindness? The second point is how is the veil removed? How is the veil removed? And then thirdly, what happens as a result of this veil being removed? So our first point, what is this veil or blindness? Our eyes require light to see. If you cover them, you are unable to behold reality. You are unable to behold dangers. But even more tragically, you are unable to view beauty. If you are blind, people may try and explain something that is gorgeous, beautiful, marvelous, or glorious to you. But if you have no point of reference, you will be unable to comprehend the picture that is in view. Because you are blind, because there is a veil. This reference to the veil in our passage comes from an Old Testament picture that Paul uses in chapter 3. When Moses went into the presence of God's glory, when the law was given at Sinai, his face would literally shine with the glory he had beheld. But this glory was hidden from men by a veil that Moses wore. Paul uses this picture to speak of a veil that was laying over the hearts of the Israelite people that kept them from seeing in the scriptures, in the law of God, the glory that had been revealed. That same picture is carried to chapter 4. Paul is speaking of those that have not received the gospel as having a veil imposed by Satan over the eyes of their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This veil, this spiritual blindness, a darkness that we have as a result of our fallen nature, keeps us from seeing the radiant glory of the holiness of God, the perfection of His character, the depth of His love, and the totality of his justice displayed in Christ, crucified and raised. First John, the book of First John, tells us that God is love. 
Yet in Exodus 34, we see that God will by no means clear the guilty because he is also just. How then will his glory, his holiness, and his perfection remain if he is to forgive sin? How is he to exercise that love and mercy towards sinners who deserve judgment? The answer is his glory displayed in Christ. For God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Christ lived the perfect life that we all failed to live. And then on the cross, He carried our sins. He carried the just wrath of the Father out of love for His church. What was happening there at the cross? Glory was happening there. What was happening there? The love of God and the justice of God in perfect harmony... In the work of Christ slain for sinners. The cross is God's splendid mercy and brilliant holiness on display. Is that not beautiful? As we sit here today knowing that we have sin in our hearts. Is that not glorious? Or is there a veil over your eyes, which is keeping you from seeing that. This is what spiritual blindness keeps us from seeing. This is what the veil hides from our eyes, the gospel. And we perish because of it. People all around us are heading for eternal destruction because the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing God's glory. In the gospel. So how is this veil removed? That's our second point. How is this veil removed? Can a blind person make themselves see? What if I help? Is it possible for me to reason the blindness away from someone? No. The reality is that I could stand up here all day long and expound upon the manifest glories of God in Christ. And if you are blind, if the veil remains, you will leave here unaffected. The state of darkness or blindness that we have by nature is not something that can be educated away. It is profound. It is real. And it keeps people from seeing with their heart the most beautiful and wonderful thing in the universe. As I said at the beginning, the only answer for a spiritually blind person is a miracle. According to Paul, the only hope that we have is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This reference is to Genesis chapter 1, where we see the earth dark and void, dead. No life, no primordial ooze, no single cell organism, complete darkness. But then something happens. God speaks. 
And what does he say? He says, let there be light. And instantly there was light. Our passage today tells us that God made light shine out of darkness. Darkness is the absolute absence of light. Yet God did not only shine light into darkness, but it said that he made light shine out of it. The example is given so that it might be clear to us that the only hope for our blindness is God speaking light and life within. And how does God speak this creating word today? How does God speak this creating word into our dark hearts today? It is by His Spirit, through the message of the gospel, through the Bible, the very word of God. You see, the context of this passage is that Paul is saying that how he does ministry is fueled by the spiritual realities of the human condition And the truth of who God is and what he has done. Paul's ministry and the way he did it was fueled by the spiritual realities of the human condition. And the truth of who God is and what he has done. We see in verse 5 that Paul clarifies his point with reminding us that he did not preach his own opinions. His own ideas. But what he preached was Jesus Christ as Lord, and then he simply presented himself as a servant to his hearers. Not for their sake, but for the sake of him who alone is worthy. Paul was radically committed to avoid tampering with the message, to avoid tainting it, flavoring it with his own philosophy. He knew that the word did not need any help from him. Because he knew that the only way the veil would be removed from his listeners, that the only way the darkness could be lifted, was if the Creator God who spoke light out of darkness spoke into their hearts and minds. He knew that the Word of God, pure and unmixed, was the only hope for a world full of people who in futility staggered about in the inky blackness of sin and the deception of their darkened hearts. Listen, this is important for us. Despite the frightening truth of our blinded minds, Paul did not lose heart in ministry because his confidence was in the Creator God who made everything out of nothing. His confidence was in the power of the Word of God to create life out of nothing. His confidence was in the glorious God who speaks and brings light out of darkness. The God who reigns with complete sovereignty and accomplishes all of His plans. Unbelieving friend here today, listen now to the life-giving Word of God. Why will you die in darkness? Why will you not turn and look to the glory of Christ crucified on your behalf? Today, if you hear his voice through the word, do not harden your heart. Turn to Christ, repent, 
and believe that in Christ, justice has been met and mercy has been poured out on your behalf. That's my prayer for you today. That the veil would be removed. Our third point. What happens as a result of the veil being removed? What then happens as the darkness is lifted? Imagine if you were born blind for a second. You had never seen a thing. You have people all around you that are constantly excited about what they saw in their travels or in the latest big budget movie. You try to be excited with them, but deep down you know that you have no point of reference for what they are talking about. Then one day you are taken on a trip with your family to the Alps in Switzerland. All during this trip they are gushing about the beauty of their surroundings, describing the majesty of creation. And then suddenly, one day, something miraculous happens. As you are standing, breathing in the fresh mountain air, light invades your senses. Before your eyes is this awesome sight, snow-capped peaks, And green valleys sprawled before you. Put yourself right there. What would your response be? Just imagine that for a moment. You see, going from darkness to light is as drastic a shift as it sounds. It is a drastic shift that always brings about real results. So what happens when the veil is removed and I gaze upon the glory of Christ in the gospel? What happens? What fundamental shift occurs? It is for this point that I would like for us to examine a few sub points. What happens when we with unveiled face behold the glory of God in Christ? So number one, the first thing, beholding the glory of God in Christ makes us aware of our sin and depravity. The first thing that happens when the veil is removed is that our self-righteous delusions are exposed. Sadly, many so-called Christians cannot identify with the Apostle Paul when he declares, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Isaiah, in the Old Testament, in chapter 6, we get a picture of the effect that beholding the glory of God has in revealing our sin. In that passage, the prophet Isaiah has this amazing throne room experience where he gets to see God's glory. Upon getting a glimpse of the holiness and the brilliance of the holiness of God, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. Isaiah did not need a seminary lecture on depravity, on original sin, To become devastatingly aware of his sinfulness. He only needed to get a glimpse of the glory of God. 
Those that have had their eyes opened have beheld the glory, the absolute holiness and purity of God. And it is this beholding that lays bare our sin. And number two, beholding the glory of God in Christ causes us to see the magnitude of God's mercy in Christ to satisfy His just wrath towards us. The same aspect of having our eyes opened that causes us to see our sinfulness causes us to begin to comprehend the magnitude of God's mercy. I say begin because now we see through a glass darkly, dimly, and only in eternity when we behold perfectly God's glory will we understand the incomprehensible magnitude of what God accomplished in the cross. As we are made to sense the majesty and holiness of God and to behold it in all of Scripture, we come full circle to the cross. This is where we behold the gospel of the glory of Christ, as we saw earlier. We see at this time the graciousness of our calling, which was to the praise of His, that is God's glorious grace, Ephesians 1.6. In this, in seeing this, we avoid presuming upon God's grace, but we learn to live in humble amazement of God's mercy toward us. And third, beholding the glory of God in Christ is a means of our sanctification. As I said, there is a fundamental shift that occurs and manifests itself when we have the veil removed. As we behold the glory of God with unveiled face, we begin to reflect that glory from one degree of glory to the next. We see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is what the Bible refers to. This process is what the Bible refers to as sanctification. This process of becoming more like Christ that continues our entire life. It is by beholding the glory of God in the gospel, by beholding the gospel of the glory of Christ, that sanctification is realized That sanctification comes to pass in our lives without descending into the Christ-belittling swamp of legalism and dead works. This is where we find joyful endurance in sanctification until that day when our sanctification turns to glorification. They are both Part of the one process, sanctification and glorification, of becoming more like God, who alone is glorious in holiness. The height of our glorification will be when we see Christ face to face. For we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3.2 This becoming like Christ starts now as we reflect what we behold in the gospel. And it will be complete when we behold Christ fully in the last day. 
We are being sanctified by degrees as we gaze with unveiled face at the glory of God. The next effect of beholding the glory of God in Christ is also part of our sanctification. This process of becoming like Christ would be joyless and hopeless were it not for the truth that beholding the glory of God in Christ makes us see Christ as more beautiful and valuable than anything in this life. This real effect of beholding the glory of God in the gospel is what separates gospel obedience from legalism. This is perhaps one of the greatest evidences of being born again, and it is what sets us apart from the world. This this one gets to our hearts and crowds out the idols that rob God of the glory that belongs to Him alone. This is one of the marks of a true believer. In spite of our struggles and our battle with sin, we press on because we know not with our minds, but with our entire being that there is nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. Those that have beheld the glory of God in Christ do not recoil when they hear hard truths from God's word. Or are called to leave comfort for the sake of the gospel. If they have beheld Christ as more beautiful than anything. Then they desire for him to be on the throne of their hearts. When their awakened ears hear the gospel preached. In a way that places God and his glory at the center. They do not shrink back from that. But they rejoice. These are the ones that uphold Scripture even if it calls them to a life of suffering because their treasure is God Himself. How few I have met who have experienced this. It is a silent gravity within that pulls you to Christ again and again and again as your only source of all joy. This is what Jonathan Edwards, a great early American preacher, experienced when he was saved. And he puts it well. I'm going to read this slowly. Um, It's full of so much information, but I think it's good for us to hear this today. He testifies, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and ideas of Christ and of the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. I had an inward sweet sense of these things. My mind was greatly engaged reading and meditating on Christ and the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation of free grace in him. And Edwards goes on to say that he had a real sense of the excellency of God and Jesus Christ. And of the work of redemption. And the ways and works of God revealed in the gospel. There is a divine and surpassing glory in these things. An excellency that is of a vastly higher kind. And more sublime nature than in any other things. 
a glory greatly distinguishing them from all that is earthly and temporal. He that is spiritually enlightened truly apprehends it and sees it or has a sense of it. He that is spiritually enlightened does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There is not only a rational belief that God is holy, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. There is not only speculative judging that God is gracious, but a sense of how amiable God is upon that account, or a sense of the beauty of this divine attribute. attribute. Those that have had their eyes open to behold the glory of God in Christ have been captivated by His beauty and by His splendor. That leads to the fifth and final sub-point. Beholding the glory of God in Christ makes us long for heaven. Finally, I want to point us to the fact that those that have beheld the glory of God in Christ long to behold it more fully, namely face to face. Those that are beholding the glory of Christ feel less and less attached to their life here and more focused on things that are eternal. The Puritan preacher John Owen in his great work, The Glory of Christ, says this, No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not, in some measure, behold it by faith in this world. Many will say with confidence that they desire to be with Christ and behold His glory. But when asked... They can give no reason for this desire, except that it would be better than going to hell. So it is only as we behold the glory of Christ by faith here in this world, that our hearts will be drawn more and more to Christ and to the full enjoyment of the sight of His glory hereafter. If seeing and being with Christ is not our ultimate desire, then we should tremble and ponder if we have ever had our eyes enlightened. Is what we think we have seen really that beautiful, priceless pearl, which is the glory of God displayed at the cross? Is that being manifest in our lives as our greatest treasure? Are you here today and your heart is saying amen to this message, but you know that your affections are not where they should be? You know that the gospel should be more evident in your life? You know that you should be more captivated by Christ? Is there anything we can do to cultivate a life that beholds and reflects the glory that we have been made to see in Christ? That question leads us to our two points of application. The first point is gaze upon God's glory seen in the gospel. Gaze upon God's glory seen in the gospel. Perhaps you are here today 
and you are listening to this, and in your heart you agree with what you are hearing, yet deep down you know that this description of a life captivated by the glory of God doesn't describe you. You know that in your priorities, in your friendships, at home, at work, You are not reflecting the glory of God displayed in the gospel message. If our priorities, if the things we treasure do not reflect the glory of God, there is a reason. If the precious worth of Christ is not filling the eyes of your heart, then something else is. We must ask the question as Christians... What is eclipsing that glory if we are not reflecting it? If we are not seeing that source of light? What dark obstruction is blocking the light of the glory of Christ from being seen in your life and in my life? What thing, what relationship What pursuit in your life has moved between you and your vision of Christ diminishing the glory that is there? The Bible teaches us that the fundamental problem that we have as sinners is that we trade what is infinitely glorious for mere reflections of glory. What in your life has moved between you and your vision of Christ? Diminishing the glory that is there. This is one of the reasons why we need the church. Why we need this. Why we need community centered around the gospel. Sometimes it's hard to perceive on our own what is keeping us from seeing the glory of Christ. Sometimes the sufferings and sorrows of life cause us to stop looking to the only true source of life and light. We need others who are pointing us to Christ, reminding us of the cross which displays the matchless purity and condescending love of God toward us. This is why when you come here to Redeemer, you will hear the gospel every single Friday from every passage of Scripture. Because we are a church that believes that God, through the preaching of the gospel, saves and transforms sinners. Cultivate a lifestyle of gazing at the gospel of the glory of Christ. Read good books, sing good biblical songs, bask in the splendor of who God is. Fill your mind with glorious things. Take time daily to marvel at how God removed your blindness and revealed the good news. Fight to prioritize time in the word each day. Get a hold of good books that will expand the scope of the glory of God. Books like Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Or perhaps um, the abridged version of the book The Glory of Christ by John Owen. Spend time feeding the longing to know God and to see His glory. And stop pursuing dim lights. Stop pursuing 
cheap imitations of glory. Perhaps one of the greatest things that you can do to cultivate a life of amazement at the gospel is to speak about the glories of it often. Proclaim it. It was not, it is meant to shine forth. It was not meant to be hidden. And that takes us to our second point of application from this passage. Confidently declare the gospel. Confidently declare the gospel. Have you ever been tempted to lose heart in sharing the gospel message with family and friends? Maybe you have not even stepped out and shared this great message of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Perhaps you don't think that you are eloquent enough or you don't even know where to start, how to begin. Maybe you feel like there is no hope because of your lack of knowledge or your lack of ability. The good news is that the power required to save souls and transform lives does not come from you. No, in fact, the verse following our passage today In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Paul says that we have this treasure, this gospel word, this gospel ministry in jars of clay in order that it might become evident that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If we have learned anything today, it is that the only hope that anyone, your mom, your son, your neighbor, your husband, that the only hope that anyone has in your life of being delivered from spiritual blindness is if the Creator God who made everything out of nothing speaks. We have learned that ultimately in this world there is deadness and there is darkness and there is only one answer for that, the Word of God. Not spoken eloquently, not delivered perfectly at times, but proclaimed faithfully and with purity and with unwavering confidence in its power alone to create life and light out of void and darkness. Throughout my time as a Christian, I have been encouraged greatly to meditate on these things, to meditate upon the glory of God in Christ, in the face of Christ. Thinking on this reality found in Scripture causes a joy to rise in me like nothing else does. I am poor. I am needy. I am full of sin and self. But I have seen something that is worth everything. And I have not seen it in my own wisdom or my own intelligence But because God, according to His glorious mercy in Christ, looked into the inky blackness of my heart and said, Let there be light. It is my prayer and sincere longing that together we find in the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, our joy in life, our hope in death, And the courage to be ministers of this gospel 
and not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, the surpassing power to save those under the veil of sin and to transform darkened hearts does not rest in us, but in you. In your powerful, creating word. I pray that Redeemer Church of Dubai would put no confidence in human wisdom and human power, but that we would persevere without losing heart in faithfully, accurately proclaiming your truth. That we would rest in knowing that the hope of the UAE, the hope of our friends, the hope of our families is the God who causes light to shine out of darkness. I pray that we would live a lifestyle of beholding your glory and that together we would reflect that glory into the darkness around us. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen.